The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody. It's been a long time since April, since the Buddhist studies has met. A real deep welcome to everyone, and especially people here for the first time. You might have seen Charlie, our program host, has a sign-up sheet out on the table in the lobby. And so if you haven't been in the Buddhist Studies class in the last year or two, you're probably not in the Buddhist Studies Google group. So please print your email very neatly there. Even if you registered online, that doesn't mean you're in the Google group. You actually have to let me know. And the easiest way to let me know is print your email neatly. Nobody else has to really sign in except people who are new and think they're not on the Google group. And basically, if you haven't been in a Buddhist studies recently in a year or so, you're not in the Google group. So print your email. We'll get you on that. And then you'll get an email once a week just with the readings. Of course, all of the information exists on our website or our web page, which is at Common Ground's website. Um, And I think it continues to be commongroundmeditation.org, right? Buddhiststudies.commongroundmeditation.org. And you can get all of the readings and everything there. Maybe while I'm talking about that, I'll just mention that recently we've been using Moon Palace Books, trying to support our local independent books, Now, everyone's going to have a different relationship to the readings. Some of you who don't have children or have a special interest or retired or for whatever reason have time, you might do a lot of study to support your practice. Other people might do more limited amounts of study. But one book that um, will be a really nice support, relatively recent book by Gil Fransdahl, Unhindered, A Mindful Path Through the Five Hindrances, looks like this. I asked Moon Palace Books just a few blocks down on Minnehaha. Minnehaha is just a few blocks this way, and then it's down uh, 32nd in Minnehaha, right next to Peace Coffee. Caffeine and books. <laughs> it's a nice combination. So, uh, but they won't have them until Friday, so you can pick a book, uh, book then, and they'll just keep ordering more as they get purchased so that there will be at least a few there. And then there's other resources that I'll have online. A lot of them you can just download directly, no charge. But this book, of course, will have a charge um, if you want to have it. And we'll try to have a copy in the reference library that we'll keep at the center so people who want to come early and read or um, just come to the center at another time to read. And so the Buddhist Studies series is this really powerful dynamic, just as the Buddha suggests we should do. We need to hear information or read information because otherwise we just keep doing what we've always done, getting what we've always got from our lives. So there has to be some new input to rock the boat a little bit, to stir things up a little bit. So in the tradition, you know, we get some teachings from the Buddha or from somebody who's done these teachings and is sharing from their own life, right? And that could be through a book or through a talk or through talking to a Dharma friend who has a real interest in the practice as you do. 
and we get some input. And that's just, you know, concept. It's just language. But so the next step, as essential as that is, is to think about the, you know, the information that we've got from a book or from a teacher or from somebody. We reflect on it. You know, what does that, you know, what did, what did Mark say? He said, you know, get interested in what obscures present moment awareness. Well, what does that mean for me? So I'm thinking, but now I'm thinking in the context of my direct, immediate, present moment experience. So you could call that contemplation or reflecting or reflecting on the teachings in light of being a human being with a mind. Right? So we're integrating what we heard as information, as concept, and what does that, how does that illuminate, clarify our own experience? So this is the second part of wisdom. The first part is to be willing to hear something that's different than what we already think or know. And the second part is then to think about it and reflect on it in terms of our actual experience. And that sets up the third part of wisdom which is more what you hear about in this tradition, especially is what we call insight, where the mind sees something about the nature of things that it hasn't seen before. And an insight is not concept. Like when you kind of, oh yeah, this is what the Buddha is talking about, a lot of those insights are more on the level of concept. We're, we're really starting to clarify, oh, when Mark said that the other night, now I'm getting a sense of what he was talking about. That's the middle part, the reflecting, contemplating. The third thing isn't conceptual, and it's always surprising. And a nice way to think about insight, which is really you know, the point of the Buddhist study series, the six-year curriculum, but nobody's watching, nobody really cares. When you started the Buddhist study series, and like some people have really, people like Jimmy and others who've been doing it for decades, you know, they've wandered through the six years, mostly two and a half times, maybe, maybe three times. I think you were doing it in the early 90s, right? Maybe a few, I know Kyoko was around then doing the Buddhist studies back in the late 90s when we first started, yeah. So it doesn't really matter, but just so you know, it is a six-year cycle through these different models or approaches the Buddha has to studying the mind. And... uh, you know, when we do that work, we have insights, these shifts. And the shift of understanding comes from the getting new information and contemplating our present moment experience in light of the frames or in light of the sort of perspectives we get from the information that we've learned. So it's like a way of looking at the present moment. Because to be really honest with ourselves, it's like you can look at the present moment all you want, But if you don't shift the frame, the way you look at the present moment, you'll never see anything different than what you've already seen. We think we're just like opening to things as they are, but we're opening to things as they are in light of what we think we're going to see. So that's why we need that new information. That's why we have to own the new information. We have to reflect on it, contemplate it, so it makes sense. Like how to apply it, how to use it as a frame to connect with reality, the activity of the mind and body. And it's like we start to collect data when we look at the present moment through that frame, seeing things as they are. 
Right? So we're seeing things as they are. And one of the frames, of course, we'll be using during these seven weeks is we're, we're particularly, we're highlighting how the mind goes from clarity, continuity of present moment awareness to being lost in thought. Like That's such an interesting process to go from having some clarity and then being completely lost. And it, you know, maybe a thousand, maybe a couple thousand times a day at least, right? Where there's a very clear, I mean, not opposite of clear, but there's a very distinct, real process of the mind being clear, seen relatively clearly. Oh, it's just sensation being known or just thinking being known, just the activity in the mind and body being known. And then, boom, something happens. And for a while then, it's as if we don't exist as a practitioner. We still may be able to drive a car or have a relationship with someone, do our job at work, but we're, there is no reflective awareness, oh, this is how it is now. This is just this experience being known. That means we're not a practitioner. We're lost in thought. And again, you can be lost in thought and, and do really high-level things. You, know, you could run a nuclear power plant or... You negotiate a treaty or be a surgeon or raise children. You can do high-level things and not really be aware that this is how it is now. Which is shocking. You know, when you look back and you realize, I did my day, it was such a swirl, I don't think I was there at all during the day. Somehow, I went from A to B, but there was no me in the sense of this reflective awareness, oh, this is being known, this is what's happening, this is what's being felt. No, none of that present moment reflective awareness, or maybe a couple moments, but mostly lost in thought. This is a kind of a wake-up call. So when we're, we have the frame, you know, the frame of the Dharma, we often say, you know, from the Buddhist teachings, we have these frames that help illuminate present moment experience and serve as a counterweight to interpreting present moment experience in ways that are deluding, right? That's really what these frames are all about, how to stay, be in the present moment, not get confused by it. Then it's like we're collecting data. And it's this data that we're collecting, moments of present moment, aware. I mean, being aware in the present moment, knowing that it's like this. It's like, Data, 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 data. And eventually that data overwhelms wrong view and there's a little seismic shift in understanding. And, it's, and it happens suddenly a little bit like an earthquake. Right? That pressure has been building a long time. I don't know if any of you have lived, I lived for a long time in California, and I know this experience well. And then recently, more recently, maybe two or three years ago, remember that big earthquake on the East Coast? I was in New Jersey at the time, real close to Philadelphia. And it was a big earthquake. I mean, I was with my mother-in-law in this knitting shop. An old, you know, it's an old colonial town in New Jersey. And that building, you know, was probably from the late 1700s, certainly the 1800s. And it just like, it was moving. But the, it's like, that stability, and then there's, there's some openness, right? There's a little crack in the delusion that everything's solid and things are moving. And the mind realizes something 
a moment earlier it was diluted about. Like things are more fluid than I thought they were. <laughs> you know, because we just live most of our life as if the earth is like doesn't move around. And then we have a moment where the earth is moving and we realize actually the earth is in motion. And most of the time we're just unaware, we're pretending that ain't true. We're in a diluted state that things are solid. So this is the thing about insight. They happen in little seismic shifts. It's always surprising. It's something happens we didn't expect to happen because we're not necessarily aware of how many data points have been collected. We don't know when the tipping point is going to be where wrong view no longer in that moment makes sense. And then there's this natural process that the mind reorganizes its understanding based on data, not based on habit. And so there's that shift where the mind sort of is using one view, and then all of a sudden in the next moment is operating with a different view. Oh, this is all about me. I don't really know what this is about. You know, it's just nature, just stuff happening. As one teacher says, empty phenomena rolling on. So some little bit of a taste of that sort of a dent, a, a shift out of the very ordinary common self-view, way of framing things always in terms of me and mine and my experience and all the different ripples of that self-view. So for this practice to happen, we have to do all three of those parts. You know, So when you're free, when you don't have business obligation, work obligations, family obligations that are important, then you come on Monday night or sick. Otherwise, you come on Monday night. So this is different than some of the other programs at Common Ground. And over the years, you know, the Buddhist studies class has gotten bigger. But we want to, as best we can, maintain that sense of we're here together in community. Because when we're this size, it can feel like we're anonymous. And so when we do our small group work, people feel like because I'm anonymous, I don't have to do that. I could sneak out. But no. So if you want to do this, you're really committing to being part of the community and doing the work together. Now, Different people are going to have different amounts of time to study, to practice at home. Some of you will miss several of the sessions because of work obligations or family obligations. Your kid gets sick or you get a cold or whatever it might be. And that's okay. And you should never feel like I can't sign up for the Buddhist studies because I'm going to be out of town for three out of the seven or eight weeks. Come. But when you can come, you have to come. Right? That's the deal we make with each other. It's not a deal with me. It's a deal with each other because the kind of committedness people have really supports the work we're doing. Because the easiest thing in the world is to be forgetful. In other words, to imagine that this work doesn't really matter or I can do it later. That is the biggest obstacle for the liberation of the heart, becoming a kinder, wiser human being and really helping the world be a more just place is we somehow imagine the work's not that important. And so we have to counter that you know, with these skillful means like we're in this together. You look around the room, we're making this commitment together that when we can be here, we'll be here. 
depending on what's going on in our life, we're going to do some study. Depending on what's going on in our life, we have the intention to practice every day. A little study, a little formal sitting time or walking meditation time so that we have that reflection time, right? Where we're picking up the information, we're using it as a way of framing the mind, see how it supports connecting with things as they are and sustaining that present moment awareness. How, do the, how does the information support our intention to have that continuity of present moment awareness? I think your buzzer, or you think it's chirping a little. Do you, do you want me to wear that? <laughs> Isn't that an interesting word? Yeah. <laughs> I was. Uh, we were talking the other day with Niels Heyman, uh, who was visiting, teaching. Hopefully, some of you got to hear Niels when he was teaching in in the middle of June, and he was saying to us that he was going to give a talk um, out in the Bay Area where he lives um, with the against the stream community. It's a, a, a kind of an organization in this wider insight meditation scene that Kamagran is part of here in the West, coming out of Theravada Buddhism. And Noah Levine started at some big centers on the West Coast around in L.A. and in San Francisco and a few other towns. And, um, and evidently, like part of the culture, there's, they swear a lot. It's like when you're giving Dharma talks, you have to, including the F word. <laughs> but here at Common Ground, it's like, you don't do that. <laughs> I mean, for with good reasons. It's like we want people to feel safe. Now, maybe there are people who don't feel safe unless the teacher. <laughs> so if that's the case for you, let me know. <laughs> and we'll see what we can do. But there are definitely a few people, you know, for whatever reason, their cultural conditioning, when they hear those words, it's sort of like, you know, it's just shocking. I was uh, teaching a retreat just last week uh, out in the West Coast a nine-day retreat with Kabbalah Masters. And in one of my talks, I, you know, I was just sort of on a roll. And I was just talking about like, what our mind does at times and you know, gets in a funk and thinks. And I said, life sucks. So, in the, but in the middle of a nine-day retreat where people are getting sensitive, it's like after that talk, I had a lot of remorse because I had a feeling like there were at least a couple people in the room that that phrase was a little too harsh, given where their mind was in that moment. No, I'm sure most people, it was fine. But we're trying to take care of everybody. This is why it's so impossible to be a human being. It's like, because <laughs> everybody has different needs all the time. But, but just because it's hard doesn't mean we're not committed. That's what I, I was just alluding to at the beginning with that, just acknowledging like, how we show up in this space, it's different for all of us. For some people walking into this room, it's not easy. Right? When you look around this room, it's not easy to show up in this space if this doesn't feel like home to you. And to just realize that how, as a community, we can be responsible for anybody who might walk in the door so that you know, we're not unconsciously being in a bubble, 
about you know who we are and and our interest in yeah just being a welcoming community, learning how to do that. So that's really the essence of the Buddhist studies that you know and why it, it's sort of a different program than some of the other programs at Common Ground is. We're working together in community. That's why we have small groups every other week. So next week we'll have small groups. One of the things you can share in the small group next week, because you have a whole week to observe, like what is the most predominant hindrance? What is for you the most obscuring pattern in your mind that leads you from moments of being relatively centered, relatively present, having some continuity of present moment awareness to then being lost in thought? Is it a kind of restless, worrying, frenetic pattern? Is it a dull, heavy, I don't have the energy to really connect with things as they are? Even even with sleepiness and dullness, it can even be like an oh, poor me, have flavors of oh, like life's just too, I just need to sink, Right? Does that lead you into your patterns of delusion and disconnection? Is it always wanting something? Yeah, I'll connect, but first I need to get, do this, make this happen. Is it habits of aversion, pushing something away, needing to get rid of something? Or is it doubt, thinking you've got to get clear about something before you can be connecting with things as they are? Because that's what doubt, like some doubt is very skillful, but the doubt we're talking about as a hindrance is a doubt that keeps the mind on the surface. Yeah, let me figure this out first, and then I'll settle, I'll connect, I'll recognize, oh yeah, this is, this is how it is. This is just an experience being known. Just some activity of the mind and body, emotion, whatever, being known. It's just this. Because the truth is, like from a practice perspective, it doesn't really matter with the present moment. It doesn't matter how much pain, how much emotion, how much trauma, how much joy, how much oppression. It doesn't matter. The present moment, the particulars of the present moment, doesn't really matter. Because the knowing mind, this, this balance that we call awareness, this balance, this balance, these balanced qualities we call awareness, you know? It's like a mirror. It can, it can, a mirror is willing to reflect whatever is in front of it. It doesn't matter what's in front of it. It could be something very sublime or something disgusting, something subtle, something obvious. So it's very interesting. So one of the things you can report when we break up in small groups for you know 20 minutes at the very end next week is just talk about some of the more predominant patterns that lead your mind into little bubbles, you know, where you could be lost in thought for a while, disconnected from how it is, from that more raw, simple. And there's a very, like I mentioned in the guided sit, there's a very distinct feeling when we're in the present moment. And remember, this will be as helpful as any teaching or any technique. If you get more interested in the actual experience of being present, you're going to be, find it very easy to learn about the obscuring habits of your own mind. 
because it's the contrast. We always learn best at the contrast. To go from some relative clarity into distractedness, it's relatively easy to learn something about and, and to respect the force of the hindrances, right? Remember that little booklet? I'll, I'll uh, get the link out to everybody. It's really great. It's don't look down on the hindrances because they're... Laugh at you. Thank you. Yeah, don't look down on the hindrances because they'll laugh at you. And it's, uh, he didn't really write it, but Saida Utejaniya, they just collected it from his comments to retreatants. He's a Burmese... Buddhist meditation teacher and Buddhist monk and a really wonderful teacher. There's a great YouTube video that I just saw. His mother just died and just before she died they, they did a little video of him visiting his elderly mother in his home where he grew up and <laughs> talking about what a rascal he was yeah. and difficult. Did some people see that? I oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. They have some excerpts, excerpts from the book in this video. Yeah, I'll send the link out to people because he's talking a lot about the hindrances in it and it just gives a window. But yeah, these hindrances are really potent. So we want to begin to see like what are the dominant patterns for ourselves and to normalize it by talking about it in our small groups. Oh yeah, when I observe my mind with sincerity, with some committedness, then I I have begun to see how, like what are the common ways my mind goes into distraction. How do I keep, how does this mind keep finding itself in distractedness? Because one thing we know, and certainly the Buddha says this, and then our own experience confirms it, whatever that process is, it's lawful. It can be mapped out. It can be observed as cause and effect. And if we understand cause and effect, we'll know how to weaken that tendency to go into distraction and how to feed the tendency to sustain present moment awareness, to kind of understand the balance is part of sustaining that balance, that continuity of present moment awareness. This is the whole premise of the Buddhist teachings. Already human beings, people who've never practiced, haven't heard the first thing about awareness or mindfulness, they're already bumping into moments of being present, Right? and certainly bumping into moments of being distracted. The difference between an ordinary human being and a, someone who's a practitioner studying the Buddhist teachings, putting them into practice, is we're really interested in the experience of present moment awareness and what gets in the way of it. Because we've correlated the continuity of present moment awareness with these shifts that I talked about in understanding, right? These little seismic shifts that lead to greater understanding, greater skill, greater compassion, greater freedom in the messiness of the world. So that the freedom isn't dependent on good circumstances because the freedom that we realize in those shifts, those seismic shifts, what we call insight, it's not about the conditions. It's a shift Uh, kind of an opening of freedom that's independent of the particular conditions. It's a way of being with any conditions, like a more skillful, lighter, liberated way of being with any conditions that might come our way. Beautiful conditions, difficult conditions, ordinary conditions, 
refined, <laughs> refined conditions. So one of, the, uh, one of the things to use for homework this week is to get interested in just ordinary, whether it's in a formal sitting time or just out during your daily life, get really interested in the taste, the quality of present moment awareness. Not the definition you have for yourself of what it means to be present, but a more direct and immediate feel. What does the mind feel like, taste like when it's present? What's the feeling tone and the texture of the mind when it's distracted? Right? So we're really getting to know the contrast between what it is to be present. What does that word, being present, being mindfully aware, reflectively aware, you know, we have different ways of talking about it, but generally we use the word awareness, which is different than being conscious. Because, like I mentioned earlier in the talk, we drive home a lot of the times. Clearly we're conscious, otherwise we wouldn't know, you know how to avoid the traffic. But we might not be aware at all in the sense of there's no reflective knowing that we're turning left when we're turning left or seeing a red car when we're seeing a red car. There's not that mirror-like reflectiveness that knows that it's knowing. Right? So there's knowing. The system is sensitive. Eyes are seeing, ears are hearing. Right? Mind is thinking. But there's no reflective knowing that that is happening, that those activities of the body and mind are happening. So when we have that reflective awareness, what is that experience? So we're, that's what mindfulness really means. We're aware that the mind is conscious, that the mind is sensitive. We're aware of the sensitivity of the six sense gates, the five physical senses and the activity of the mind. Body and mind. We're aware of body and mind. We're aware that there's the sensitivity to body and mind, that the body is being known and the mental activity is being known. We're aware that mental activity, including emotion, is being known. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching is being known. We're aware. Or there is awareness. We don't even need that personal pronoun. I'm aware. We are aware. There is a knowing, an awareness. There can be an awareness that when they're seeing, that seeing is being known. When we're hearing, that hearing is being known. When we're thinking or emoting, that emotions are being known. So what's that like? And then what gets in the way of it? That's the study object for this week or for these seven weeks. And then any little nugget, like including nuggets of like why that study is so challenging. Like even that's I'm spending the time tonight kind of just laying the foundation of like what we're looking at because you'll find the easiest thing is to be forgetful, like why is that important? You know, in the great scheme of like navigating my life and getting up and brushing my teeth and dealing with relationships and all the things that we have to do, except for those of you who have recently retired. <laughs> Look at Charlie, who has more space and Haya, right? But you know, even one of the interesting things about people who have recently retired, by the way, there's a ref- retirement group that Tom and others have started 
for those who are recently retired, is how that habit of filling up our life doesn't stop just because we're not doing what we did during our working lives. Right? We find other things to absorb in. So that it's so easy to be forgetful or to be dismissive of this value we're, deep, we're uh, deepening of being mindfully aware. So that might be the little nugget you share in the group is like how hard it was to even remember why I signed up for the Buddhist studies class, why it is that the hindrances are relevant, or why it is I'd even be interested in the difference between non-distraction and distraction. I mean, the Buddha makes, and inside Utejaniya too, they make <coughs> distractedness is like the great evil. Like, it is the most dangerous thing. In terms of really difficult, painful things that happen to us that could have been avoided, like relationships that end up being really toxic, a lot of it has to do with not valuing present moment awareness because we could have avoided so many holes, so many terrible things, or even other sort of terrible things that happen to people where they do something because they weren't paying attention and it changes their life forever. A number of people in this room have been doing work in the prisons for many years, teaching uh, mindfulness practice. And one of the things that happens when we do work in the prison is we see that the only difference between them and us, a lot of them, is that when they got distracted, you know, the conditions were such that they did something that led to them being in prison. And when we get distracted, we haven't yet done that thing or gotten caught for doing that thing, right? For whatever reasons. And a lot of it is chance or even you know, the color of our skin or who knows, you know, what neighborhood we live in that makes the difference between somebody who's there and somebody who's not there. I had one of those experiences back when marijuana was still illegal, you know, police officer going through my backpack, finding my stash. This is a long, long time ago, <laughs> early 80s. You have long since given up recreational drugs and alcohol, just in case you're interested. But anyway, <laughs> but you know, kind of being who I was, looking the way I looked, you know. He looked at it, he said, less than an ounce, threw it away, and it wasn't an issue, which was really nice, because that could have been a mess. So, this, we want to, um, like if we're going to do this practice right, this uh, class right, we, we have to inspire ourselves that distraction and non-distraction is really important because it makes a big difference. That, that event was a time when I had gotten into an accident, right? So, you know, there, it had implications. <laughs> and... Uh, I didn't know one was hurt, um, but it could have been otherwise very easily. I mean, th- these are the things about distraction and non-distraction. Like when we're checking something on the phone and when we're in the car, you know, it's like, is there that reflexive awareness knowing what's happening? 
Or are we in the bubble like, oh no, this would just be a second. See, that's what distraction is, is losing that global, that both the depth and the breadth, right? Because it's only when there's reflective awareness that, is th- that the mind can comprehend based on the past. See, when we're aware, then the past is informing the present moment because the mind has the depth. Like it's, This is what emotion is, right? Where does emotion come from? It comes from the past. So when we're around something that's giving us the eebie-jeebies, right, it's just the past giving us some information through the emotional content. So when we're reflectively aware, we know, well, it feels like this now. This is just this funny feeling I'm having being known. And also the awareness, like seeing is being known, hearing is being known, sensations are being known. Right? So it's all of that that allows the mind to comprehend and to respond in a way that is based on everything that's here, including the past, arising through the emotional feel that the heart, mind, body has in that moment. So non-distraction, like we have to be thankful for all of our answers. The only reason we have the genes in this body is that to some degree our ancestors practiced non-distraction or they would have been eaten before they could have procreated and we would not be here, <laughs> right? at least not in this body. right? So Non-distraction is central to everything. And the very uh, sort of lackadaisical attitude about distraction is really at the heart of distractedness, like thinking, being aware, sort of like, you know, yeah, I I could learn Spanish or I could learn to be mindful or I could, you know, take an Italian cooking class or I could... You know, sometimes mindfulness is just like one of those things that we could do. But what we try to do, and you really see it when you look at the tradition, you know, it's like the, the Buddha was totally okay scaring people into doing the practice. Like, do you have the stability of mind to be on your deathbed, right, with clarity, without falling into fear, the bubble of fear, without falling into you know, any number of the bubbles that somebody might fall into at the time of death? Or can you be around moments of great loss or great success and joy without going nuts because of the lack of present moment continuity or present moment awareness? And then we start feeling really motivated. And I really see this as such an important part of my of my daily sitting practice is somehow finding that real committedness, that that real sincerity to get interested in distraction and non-distraction. That's really the heart of it. Because it's such a, you know, because it's a place of balance, it's not like you, you know, most of you know this, but it's still hard to keep remembering it. It's not about just forcing my mind to be present. Because that itself is a distraction, that over-efforting, trying hard to be present, is the cause for distraction. We get lost in the idea of trying to be present. Raise your hand, those of you who have been around this many, many times, raise your hand if you've spent, you know, cumulatively a couple years of your life distracted by trying to be mindful. 
<laughs> trying, right? The, all, I mean, this is so much of clarifying the practice is teasing out all the ways of trying to be mindful and how it's been the cause for distraction. You know, distraction like how many loops of like thinking we're not good at this. Because we've been trying and it's been frustrating, then it's very easy to spend some time thinking about, I'm just not good at this practice. Or I don't have a good teacher because she or he, you know, I'm struggling. So if they knew what they were talking about, I'm sure I wouldn't be struggling. (laughs) So either we blame ourselves, or we blame our teacher or we blame the Buddha or we think that this isn't the way and we should be doing something else. I had some friends when we first moved to town that were really into primal screams and screaming. And I'm sure there's some value, you know, if it's done right. But, you know, there's like so many systems out there to investigate. Well, this is a system that's all about increasing the value of present moment awareness, seeing the legitimate danger of distractedness, living a life valuing distractedness. Lost in thought, getting absorbed into our activities so that there's no reflective awareness. That's why we like movies. That's why we like sleep. That's why we like eating because it's not actually easy to be mindful when we're eating. We're kind of absorbed in either liking it or wanting more of it or you know, why it wasn't, isn't as good as it was before. We're just not often in the experience of noticing that that thought is just thought, the chewing, the physicality of chewing is just that sensation. Tasting is just that. Smelling is just smelling being known. We're just not in the immediacy of being a human being sensitive in these six ways. And why? It's like, why is the most common experience for us human beings to not be in the, ex- the direct and immediate experience of being a human being? Sense, that's what a human being means, to be sensitive in these six ways. Mental activity being known, five physical senses being known. What are we? We're thinking about some aspect of these six things, but not aware that we're thinking about these. Right? So we're thinking, but there's not a reflective knowing that, oh, that's just thought. So there's no perspective. There's no actual accurate comprehension of what it is to be a human being in those moments when we're lost in thought. Because we're, we're in that bubble of thinking that the thought is reality. So we don't need that space that understand, no, no, this is just a thought being known or an emotion being felt. We're not aware. We're not, there's not wisdom awareness there in that moment. And so the Buddha says, that's as if one were already dead. He says, mindfulness, this present moment awareness, is the path, is the way to the deathless, which is a synonym for freedom, nibbana, the unconditioned, the unshakable release of the heart. You know, these are the different ways in the, the tradition that freedom is described. Beyond birth and death, right? So deathless. So Being awake, being mindful, is the path for freedom. Being negligent, thinking that distraction and present moment awareness, the causes for distraction, the causes for present moment awareness, thinking that that's not important, being negligent, 
it's as if one were already dead, the Buddha says. So he puts it in this really dramatic way because he knows that if he doesn't, we'll put it off. Because it's subtle work, and then the, the, the things that sort of get our attention are just food and sex and power and pain and, you know, all these more... I'm not saying that, that stuff's not real or not relevant, but it's endless. We never get to the end of the messiness of the world, the imperfections of our relationships. Again, it's not about neglecting that work. It's about realizing that in our current situation, we're just going to basically be doing what we've always done and replicating what we've always gotten. So if we really want to change up how this world, how our lives are unfolding, we have to do something different. It starts with having some new information, reflecting on it, having moments of insight where understanding deepens or shifts or flips, paradigm shift or something like that, and more and more of the same. So before I do some more nuts and bolts for the, re, uh, for the course, rather, uh, just see if there's some comments from the community here, your own, especially those who have been looking at the hindrances for a while. Remember always with the mic, it's horizontal and really close to your mouth so that we can hear you. Yeah, and also any questions you have. Yeah, Anne, you want to stir us off? I feel as though the, the principle of absorption is a predominant part of how I feel when I'm awake in the present moment. Like, I can feel, and so I guess... You know, mindfulness of the body is a lot easier for me than other kinds of mindfulness. Uh, it just is. And when I'm in a mindfulness of embodiment, it feels somewhat like absorption. So mm-hmm. I get a little, I feel as though what you describe, and I believe that my skill shift comes out of what you've said, because I've been only at common ground practically for how many years. Um, it is. It isn't exact. It, it implies a consciousness that isn't the way I'm becoming awake. Well, there's. I think what you're pointing to, Anne, is a really important point, and I'm glad you brought it up because I, it's a good thing to cover at the beginning of this class in particular. Because in awareness practice, and it kind of depends on your mind, your personality, or the sort of qualities that are strong in your mind. Some of you will have more of a natural talent for what Ange just called absorption or samadhi. And, and in particular, the samadhi that when the mind collects, when the mind is showing up to an experience and uh, it has sort of an exclusive attention to the experience, like Ann mentioned awareness of the body, bodily sensations, right? Then what's going to happen is that it sort of creates a feedback loop where the degree of absorption, the degree of the energies of the mind collecting with that exclusive object of awareness, the sensations of the body in this case, that the experience of the gathering of the energies of the mind or the unification of the mind 
become a very predominant experience itself. So you have the sensations that you're aware of, but because there's so much um, integrity and devotion to those sensations, there's another thing starting to happen, which is the collectedness of the mind. So there's two things that the mind is knowing. It's knowing the sensations of the body, and it's also noticing and knowing the collectedness of the mind. And eventually, the collectedness of the mind is going to be more predominant than the sensations of the body. And so then it, gets a, it can get a little trippy, samadhi. Yeah, it's a very skill. It's, you could say it's the most skillful bubble, right? Samadhi in, in, in the sense of like real concentration in the direction of jhana, what's called jhana, these absorptions, is a very skillful bubble. It's skillful in the sense that there's a lot of emotional healing that can happen. And when you come out of the bubble, the mind is really sensitive so that it will hopefully support insight, the sensitivity, because it's hard to be a sensitive person without a lot of wisdom in the world. It's a little crazy-making if you don't have a lot of wisdom when you're really sensitive. But there's no wisdom when you're in a bubble. There's no wisdom developing when you're in the bubble. But there can be wisdom developing as you come into the bubble, and there can be some wisdom developing as you go out of the bubble. So where we're, where we're sort of aiming is not to go into those bubbles. We're not trying to absorb into the bodily experience or hearing or any walking or seeing, because you can kind of get trippy. I'm using trippy in sort of a fun way, you know, because when the energies of the mind really collect in that way, the degree, it's like ordinary perception changes. Because when you're in that clear, direct, and immediate experience of the bodily sensations, the conventional experience of the body goes out the door. And so your experience of the body is very different than what we normally think of as, oh yeah, that's what the body feels like. Same with hearing. Any experience gets different. You have an altered state because of the absorption, because of the quality of concentration, it's different. And there's two parts of it. One is the refinement of attention is much more profound. So you're looking at sensation in a much more refined way. And then the other is the collectedness of the mind is putting a spin on the experience of sensation itself. The awareness doesn't necessarily, can't tease out in terms of what it's knowing. Is it knowing the collectedness of the mind or is it knowing bodily sensations? Because they're sort of dancing together, right? It's part of what the mind is knowing is a very collected mind and the peace and the stillness and the energy of that. And part of what the mind is knowing is sensation when, there's, when the mind's not distracted by anything else. So it's like a different experience. But that's not where we're going. I mean, it's good work, and for you know, people who've been into to the practice for a while, they might, for a year or many months, really emphasize more concentration practice or go on retreats that are really about developing deep, deeper states of absorption. It's really appropriate for people who are really, uh, you know, just studying the whole breath. And we do that, like some of the courses we do in the six years, 
really emphasize the absorption end of the practice. And you can always talk to me about that if you're doing that for a while, and I can give you more specific instructions. But most of the time, we're calming down enough, but not going into absorption, not getting into any kind of samadhi bubble at all. Right? Because we want enough things coming and going that we can practice not being distracted with changing objects of experience. Right? So we want to notice the mental objects coming and going, distractedness coming and going, greed coming and going, and the wholesome qualities coming and going. We want to see the activity of the mind and body as an activity of nature, following causes and conditions, because that's where insight happens. We're transforming what we take the activity of the mind to be. Because just in short term, we take the activity of the mind and body to be me. And when we study it with enough concentration, enough stability of awareness, we discover that the activity of the mind and body is not me. It's just the activity of the mind and body being known. Or for short, you could say, it's nature. It's the nature of these natural things, natural processes, when they're known to be like this. There's no me in that natural process. That's just a convention that has ended up really confusing the mind. It's a habit of putting a label, the activity of mind and body, that's me. That habit of putting the label me has turned out to be very confusing for what this process of mind. And so that's we need to sort of be in that more ordinary state to do wisdom or insight practice. Yeah, you want to pass the mic to Helen? I don't get so absorbed, but um, I've noticed when I've been meditating lately that maybe a scary thought might come up, and I go, uh-oh, let's see what happens next, and there's no reaction. And I might feel really uncomfortable sitting, and you know, my mind will go, okay, aversion's going to come up, but no aversion. So it's been very equanimous. But in my everyday life, sometimes I get so frustrated, it's like, I can't stand how I get thrown uh, with sensations, um, emotions. And then I kind of have to kind of check and go, okay, what am I doing? And what's helped me is, um, okay, breathing into my heart, um, I'm no one to be, or I'm not no one special to be. And then I say, nothing to do, and just being. Because I think when I'm in my everyday life, there's part of me thinking I still have to be a person. I mean, a be somebody. And I think it's deeply wired in me. And so I have to relax in my daily life. Yeah. And this is, especially for people who have a, a mind that more easily concentrates, see, it will eventually work for you too, in some ways even better. So it's just like different paths. It's not like one path is better than the other. Because people who spend a lot of time in their sits in a bubble, then they end up in their daily life really sensitive. And little things push them around because they had a lot of quiet in their sit, and then they move into the rest of the life, and everything is like really loud and big and strong. So to learn to not be afraid 
of the intensity, that's more where the wisdom will develop for people who, in your sitting time, you're getting more regular quiet states. So don't worry about that too much. I mean, it's, it's okay. Like what I often would say to somebody who easily, more easily, not all the time, of course, falls into a quiet state is then maybe for the last 10 minutes, open your eyes and don't in any way direct your attention. Because in very subtle ways, people who you can use samadhi to suppress the activity of the present moment in ways you wouldn't suspect. So you've got to like stop meditating for like the last 10 minutes of your sit. Open your eyes. If you have to, stand up. And you're just letting everything rip. You're not trying to be distracted or anything. You know, you're not trying to think of anything. But you're not trying to manage your experience. You're not trying to stay with the calm. You're just letting things come and go. But don't worry if they don't. If you, you know, even in that, you're still kind of in that quiet, settled place. Because eventually... Somebody will be right in front of you and they'll trigger something in you. <laughs> and then in that, your quiet will be disturbed, right? The sensitivity of the quiet will be disturbed by whatever life has triggered in you. And then you'll learn, oh, that's just something being numb because that's the only way to manage. If you always try to go back to your quiet place, you'll start to see how neurotic that is to always have to be under your covers, right? Some even though it's sort of a relatively wholesome thing to do, to be a mind, to be dependent on being in that quiet place, that secluded place, that's no way to live. That's a frightened way to live. So this is where people who more easily concentrate, they learn that running back to their quiet place is stressful. What would happen if I didn't run back? And really learning to normalize the messiness that I'm, uh, nobody's getting pushed around by the intensity, by the roughness, by the density of emotion, of sound, of what's happening in the moment. Now, you know, maybe that's a quarter of the people who have a nat- more of a natural talent in their sitting practice to go to quiet places more often. You know, and then you know, a third, and let's say a third are sort of more in the middle, they get some quiet sits, but mostly it's like a lot of stuff happening, struggling with painful sensations of the body, dealing with a lot of mental activity in the mind. And then a third that's just having a lot of, they rarely have a settled sit. But you can progress in your practice whatever sort of mental mind system you have, whether you're over here, because... The trouble with these people is they make these people feel like they're not practicing correctly, right? (laughs) But then when you get a sense of your wisdom developing, that you can let things be a mess without being weighed down, without personalizing the mess, and then you think these people are just like, they're in a nice soft bubble, but, you know, they're vulnerable to somebody popping their bubble. But you never got dependent on a bubble. Right? It's been hell the whole time. The Buddha calls these people uh, taking the path of dry wisdom. Right? These people at this, especially at this far end, they call it, it's the moist path, right? The the sort of samadhi and the pleasantness of that absorption is a lot of moisture in the practice, not dry and sterile. 
right? These people have an incentive to be really sincere in the practice because it's never pleasant or rarely pleasant, right? I'm kind of like here in my practice, you know? I did, you know, I've, well, anyway, I don't need to go into that. We're out of time. But, and you don't even need to know where you are, you know, but I'm happy to talk with you one-on-one if you, if you want to sort of, but you'll get a sense just hearing, like even in the small group, you'll just hear yourself talking about where you are in your practice. But wherever you are, we're dealing with the hindrances. It's just different. Here, these people aren't dealing with the hindrances that much when they're sitting because they get to that place where the hindrances are suppressed and they're experiencing the mind relatively free of the hindrances until they're not sitting anymore, you know, and life happens and throws them around and then it's different. These people are dealing with the hindrances all the time. But they're starting to see that the hindrances aren't personal much more soon than these people over here. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.